Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Mildred Tussoni, and this is Real Estate Coast to Coast. Um, today we're starting off with Diane Solano from Keller Williams Commercial, Got Properties. Hi, Diane, how are you? Good morning, everyone. And we also have um, Mark Duval. Is that how you pronounce it? I'm sorry. Mark Devella. Devella, I'm sorry. I, you know, it's one of those days. Um, so welcome to you, and um, you will give us a little bit of your background, Diane. Why don't you start? Um, you can give us a little bit of your background, Mark. You can tell us about yourself, and then you guys can give us an idea of how you're working in the commercial real estate area of uh, things. Um, okay. As an introduction, I guess, to myself, I've been a commercial real estate broker for uh, approximately 13 or 14 years. I lost, lost track. Um, uh, mainly um, doing <laughs> doing a whole bunch of things. We do development. I do uh, retail. I do leasing. I do uh, commercial sales mainly is, is my mainstay. Um, I do a little bit of hospitality, and I pretty much run the gamut of of everything that a commercial broker should, you know, should have uh, should have full knowledge of. Uh, I've been working with Keller Williams for about uh, going on two years now. I've been on my own for a while. I've been with various other brokers, and um, you know, pretty pretty well rounded commercial broker. And that would be me. Okay, good. Um, Mark, you um, want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I started off in real estate in 2002, and I immediately ran into Diane, and Diane was nice enough to um, allow me into her inner circle, and she and I started working on large development and investment-type properties together immediately. And she and I established a bond of trust, whereas... We could convey properties to each other without having to worry that someone was going to circumvent each other, and we established a, a long downline of trust um, with other um, associates within our circles, and we all became friendly, and we did deals when the market was good. Um, but also I was more- in the process of doing assemblage deals for development, and I had turned Diane on to some of these different things that I was doing, but what I started to see immediately starting towards the end of 2005, beginning of 2006, was a change for the worse. And immediately I had already furthered my education and with the process of uh, getting my appraisal license. Um, upon completing that in 2006, Nassau County heard that I was not yet tainted by the spoiled market that we had, and they called me in for some tests with regard to being a judge. I didn't know it at the time, but they interviewed me and they called me in and they did a background check and they said that there was a special program for appraisers that they were doing and I said, okay, I'm game. So I took a few tests and I went through a few interviews and then they gave me a couple videos to take home and I took those home and then they gave me an aptitude test and they interviewed me again. And the next thing I know, I became a hearing officer in the Supreme Court in Nassau County um, to take a look at uh, tax cases on the residential side and helped the Assessment Review Committee of Nassau uh, 
uh, hear cases on the value of homes that were being contested. In seeing that over the last three and a half years, um, I said, these petitioners are making how much as attorneys, and they're not doing really the work that they should be in submitting these cases. And I wound up starting a tax grievance company that is now standing on its own and uh, coming into its own light. And uh, my reputation is, you know, without conflict whatsoever. And uh, I've got recommendation letters from top to bottom and side to side that are just fabulous. So I'm just basking in the existing market of uh, helping people in the commercial market and the residential market get their taxes lowered. And that's where I stand today. That's great. And this is, I'm 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 bouncing off of that, um, and I represent a lot of landlords, and uh, believe it or not, tenants themselves who are looking for space. And what what happens is that the the, the taxes that are um, of course the the landlord has to support a gets passed down to the uh, the small retailers or even the large retailers. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't hurt the landlord in his pocket immediately, it will eventually because of uh, it, it's going to, you know, um, create a lot of vacancies because a, a lot of, uh, you know, retailers are not able to withstand paying these higher taxes and gets passed down to the, uh, I guess, the, uh, the consumer. And the consumer doesn't want to pay a higher, a higher rate for a particular good and everybody suffers in the long run. Um, well, right Brian, now, I'm, uh, mm-hmm. Go ahead. Wouldn't you say that the vacancy rate for mom-and-pop retail stores is probably somewhere in the vicinity of 20% across Long Island because of that? Yes. Actually, it's, it's, it's 18%, um, main, okay. because, uh, mainly because of that reason. Um, and and it's absolutely true. I mean, you know, there are there are some other vacancies that are that are lower rates, but uh, it's it's certainly hit the retailers and landlords alike. Um, another point that I wanted to bring out is also in development too. Uh, when you buy a piece of land, and you have no, I mean, you're you're doing a guesstimate of what your taxes might pop because if if it's you know undeveloped land right right now and a particular developer wants to put a, you know, whatever type of uh, retail or store or office, they have no clue about what they're going to, what they could possibly project for the taxes. And it's hard enough getting, uh, you know, getting, getting financing in itself. But when a bank and the developer alike cannot even project what the taxes are going to be, this is, is you know, this is also another problem. You know? Well, isn't, and, isn't and it true, Diane, that with most of the development deals and the property on Long Island right now, because Long Island is roughly about 85% built out, that the developers mainly are taking corners that are already developed, and what they're doing is they're redeveloping these corners, correctly, correct? Yes, correct. All right, and in redeveloping these corners, you know, they, they take these existing buildings that are blighted and they have a tax roll on them, and that tax roll is, is probably somewhere at a minimum of in Suffolk probably seventy to eighty thousand per acre with a building on it, and in Nassau probably about one hundred and fifty thousand. And what I found, I don't know about you, but I found that the developers 
can't sustain and hold through the permitting process yes. to carry the property with the tax burden that's in place. Exactly. I mean, yeah. because that 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 carrying that tax carrying charge could be anywhere from one year to two years to I've seen it all the way up to seven years. Um, so it's it makes it very 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 difficult for them, and uh, you know, all the way all the way across the board all over Nassau County, and, uh, you know, Suffolk County is catching up pretty good. Wow. It's, it's interesting because you don't think about that, you know. Um, you think uh, you see empty stores or empty lots, and you go, why don't they develop this? But when you put it in that perspective, mm-hmm. and, and, and having just uh, that much higher that of, of a price, might make the difference between that property of being developed and and occupied or not because uh, there's right. such slim margin of error and it affects everybody if it's a local business you you have to pay more gas and time to go someplace further because that local business isn't there and can't be there right. so you know when you look at it like that it's just uh, uh, interest, amazing. Honestly, I, I didn't really think you. of it in that. I have. Well, let's, take, let's take it a step further with Diane. Diane, you would, you know, since you're the expert in the commercial market, you know, in the heyday of, of retail real estate, um, you know, uh, Main Street USA, Long Island, was what two hundred and fifty dollars a square foot for a mom and pop retail store. Absolutely. Purchase. Absolutely. Okay. Now it's uh, close to half of that. Well, at least $100 a square foot uh, less. Well, let's just say it's an average of 150 Yeah. a square foot. Yep. All right. But the taxes haven't decreased any, correct? Correct. They've only, they have wow. only increased. Right. And the, and, and the counties, Nassau and Suffolk, because don't think that one is, is, is any less guilty than the other, have inflicted such pain in reducing the assessments and still mm-hmm. increasing the taxes, that the mm-hmm. average retail tax bill for a non-village property is probably somewhere around eight to nine dollars a square foot annually. So, on a mm-hmm. thousand square foot store, you're looking at nine thousand dollars. There is, there is no, it, it can't, it can't be sustained. Right now, I'll tell you, I'm working with numerous distressed retail centers and distressed office buildings that um, have been hit so hard by the taxes, and I can't even sell the mortgage notes on them, even at, you know, 50 cents on the dollar, because the taxes are so high that even if somebody buys that note and takes over a distressed property, it's going to, you know, eat. It's just going to keep eating away and eating away and eating away, and nobody even wants to touch them because of the high taxes. I have, I have some retail centers that are paying uh, over $11 a square foot, for mom and pops, that just—it's—I um, <laughs> don't the, have the, a word. The definition for it. of mom and pops would be retail centers that are five thousand square feet and under, correct? Uh, yeah. Um, well, no, not really. I mean, that could be—it uh, could be a franchise. Um, that okay. That still could be a mom and pop, but it's not a national tenant. Basically, right. it's you know your, your standard bagel stores, your hair cutters, your privately owned um, retail. Privately owned uh, companies. That's all. See, I see the problem as this: you have these national banks and these national retail food outlets 
that pay top dollar for the property, and in turn, they are so grotesquely overtaxed, but they're making money that they're able to sustain. However, the local businessman that's adjacent to that property can't, Mm -hmm. and they're taxed just as equally as the national chain. But because the national chain is on a much bigger scale as, as far as what their value and, and what their income is and the way that they look at a dollar, they mm-hmm. don't care about the tax grievance. It's the cost of doing business in the area where your local doctor or your local physician or your local veterinarian or that uh, the, the retail um, instrument rental store or right. the, the local sports store for the school, they can't sustain that same tax rate and therefore, they're gone now. Exactly, and and um, actually, what was uh, what has actually been reported this particular year is the only retailers that are actually expanding right now, not contracting, is the the upper end retailers and the lower end retailers. Uh, by that, I mean discount stores, um, discount stores in general, also the automotive. Anything where people are going to be saving money is is expanding, or anything that is very, very, very upscale is also expanding. Anything in the middle is contracting, and those are the landlords. So a lot, of, a lot of the do-it-yourself stores, whereas you know, mom and mom and pop would go out and hire a contractor, and they have mm-hmm. the ability to do something themselves. They'll go buy that, you know, that internal uh, right. air filter for the car. That's why Home Depot, Lowe's, exactly, do it, anything, do it yourself where people could, you know, save money on doing, those are the ones that are expanding and you will see that. You'll see Target expanding, Walmart expanding, anything where there's, uh, you know, a discount. Um, In in your experience, um, because I know that, you know, you've run into the same situation, these tax sociality companies that are basically large legal firms that, that, you know, gross hundreds of millions of dollars because yes. they put cases into the system from years ago. How mm-hmm. long does do you know how long the average sociality case generally takes on Long Island? Uh, generally, no less than three years, between three and five years. Between three is and five years turn, is the general turnaround time. And of course, when even when you do receive the tax settlement, and you're going to confirm this, you never get it. You never get it back all in one chunk. It's given to you in piecemeal. Over over a particular period of time, so you know that three or five years. It's a it's what it is is a is a revolving door. That's exactly you step into a revolving door, and there's no way out of it. So that's the general turnaround between three and five years. And Mark, you're going to confirm that, right? Oh yeah. Well, I have to get you know as many people that don't like Ed Mangano, I have to commend him on this one law that he put in place back in July of 2010. And it's a six-page executive law called Executive Local Law 12. And what it states very simply in layman's terms is that if you are the owner or operator of mom-and-pop commercial real estate within the county of Nassau, under this local law and its guidelines, if you're able to properly provide a burden of proof to the Assessment Review Committee in Nassau, they will hear your case immediately, and depending on that burden of proof, they will reduce your taxes going forward immediately. Now, what this wow. does is, what was that? 
I just said, wow, I, I think that's impressive. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's okay. What what this yeah. law does now is if you're a mom-and-pop operator, and I did two cases last year, and we'll go into that in a minute, but if you're a mom-and-pop operator and you have a tax bill of 70, 80, 90, 100, 125,000 dollars and you're able to get the maximum by law which is 25% in any one year as a reduction on a burden of proof that's submitted to the county, you're talking 30 or 40,000 dollars that's all of a sudden freed up. That's freed up capital that you no longer have to pay the county to either redo your storefront, buy inventory or create jobs. However, out of all the sociality companies on Long Island, only one company took advantage of that law. Only one. And I scratch my head and I say, why is that? Why? And yes, when you take why? a look at the track record of the hundreds of millions of dollars that are negotiated in the county on an annual basis, what you come to find out is that the tax business itself is a much larger business for some of these tax houses than we ever thought it was because they sit on these fees and they sit and they sit and they're in the queue and they're in the queue for years just building up fees. Now, to the local mom and pop guy, he's still shelling those fees out while this case is in the queue. And what he's going to average as a return is somewhere between a 7 and 10% discount over three, four, five, six, seven, eight years. And he's going to get that back as a partial lump sum with an additional payout. And then he's going to say, oh, well, they lowered my taxes to, from 100000 to 70000 and they got me back an additional $30,000. If the guy really knew the law, and if his attorneys were well-versed in this law, what they would understand is they could have immediately got him 25%, and instead of him paying $100,000 every year, he would have actually had a realized savings of 25000 a year, and he could create jobs and buy additional inventory or do additional maintenance on his storefront, or a number of other things. I did two cases last year under this law, and I'm going to give you the examples of both of them. One guy was a mom-and-pop retail store located in front of one of the malls in Nassau County, 8,600 square feet, sitting vacant with a cell phone tower, paying 125000 or thereabouts um, in taxes on an annual basis with basically no income. He had permitted the space for a tenant. He did what the town wanted. Um, he improved the space, and when he got done with those improvements, the town came up to him in a very nonchalant way and said, you know, that tenant's not desirable anymore. Um, we're not interested in that type of venue at this location. And for the last seven years, the tax sociality house has had that case and wasn't able to reach a settlement. And I begged the guy. I said, look, you know, I'm wet behind the ears. It's a new law. Let me take it to the mat for you. Let's see what we can do. And I said, you're invited into the negotiation. So my firm hired an appraisal company. We brought a certified appraisal in um, with dual signatures from somebody who is an expert witness up and down the East Coast, has been involved in the courts, um, and his apprentice. And they went to work on the appraisal. It was about a 150-page report plus the leases and everything else. It was a lot of work, and it was it was an expenditure that the tax grievance company had to pay for, but they brought it in front of the county, and within 150 days of the submission of that document, or those documents, I should say, the county asked for a face-to-face -face conference. Um, we brought the owner of the property in, and we had to haggle a little bit, but at the end of the day, he wound up with 
a 25% reduction with a tax bill that was in excess of $120,000 a year, which means that it freed up over $30,000 annually for this guy, and he still has his retroactive case with the largest sociality house, who, by the way, claims that they never heard of this law <laughs> and is sitting on the case, wow. and they're still mm-hmm. trying to negotiate it out. The second case was a medical office just off of Hempstead Turnpike, which was surrounded by a Burger King and a national tenant uh, gas station. This guy was in 3,500 square feet on less than a third of an acre as a medical office, and at 3,500 square feet, he was paying $72,000 a year in taxes in the county of Nassau. Unbelievable. That's almost $20 a square foot is is what it worked out to be. Um, Again, the appraisal firm was hired. They went to work. They did what they do. And we submitted to the county with the proper forms in the format that they wanted. And on the same day as this other case, um, he was also negotiated. um, And he was given in excess of a 20% reduction, which freed up uh, just about $15,000 a year for him. So, you know, there there is relief that is available, but the problem is is that the property owners don't understand how about how they should go about getting the relief or what this local law entails. Now, don't think that everybody's got a case because most of the people are within that eight to nine to ten dollars a square foot range. But there's a lot of places out there because they're next to these national tenants and these national retail stores that don't care about what their tax bill is. Banks, fast food, gas stations, those type of things that are paying thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen dollars a square foot because the county believes since they're next to these national tenants that their property is just as valuable when in fact it actually isn't because they don't have the corner placement with dual or triple access on their property. And these mom and pop places need to take advantage of this local law and bring their cases in front of the county to have it reduced. Mark, why do you why do you think that uh, some of the other big houses have not taken advantage? Do you, do you think that they don't know about it, or is it oversight, or do you think it was it, it's um, you know a, a, a purposeful move? Both. Okay. Both. Half of the half half of them don't know the law. The other half are, well, you know, we want our day in court, and we want to we want to go about business as the usual way, and we don't want to have to expend money outside the firm that we don't have to when it's not guaranteed, when we know that so, someday, sooner or later, someone from the county is going to call them, and they're going to negotiate with us because that's the way the business has always been. Mm-hmm. Guess right. what? Those days are over. They're not going to negotiate because the county can't afford to do that anymore. Not only that, under under some other laws that Mangano has wrote at this point, the school districts are going to be responsible for the commercial refunds that are being overcharged that now have to be given back. So nobody's going to negotiate anything unless somebody really goes and files an action in Supreme Court, which are attorney's fees and time and money and all kinds of other stuff that's expended. Whereas if the local mom-and-pop retailers say, hey, I don't need the attorney's firm anymore, I can actually go hire an appraiser on my own or go hire a firm that specializes in local law 12, and they're willing to take the risk, and they'll go hire the appraiser for me because 
they think that they have a good enough case under this law, and they'll bring it in front of the county for me. I'll go that route, and I'll get immediate relief. The problem with this law is is because the county knows that there's so many properties out there that for the year 1314, you actually have to have your cases listed, prepared, and ready for submission as of October 1st, 2011. This way, the county can review as of October 2nd, 2011, which school districts are going to have to be reassessed and where monies are going to have to be placed. Because if you're taking fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars from eight, nine, ten locations within the same school district, you're not talking a small amount of money anymore, especially when sixty or seventy percent of that goes directly to the school district. So now what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to increase the taxes on the scholastic side or go out to a special vote under Cuomo's new law and say, hey, we're about to lose a half a million dollars because we have these valid cases in front of us and they're showing a half value, but we're willing to give a 25 or 20% reduction on them. We know we're going to lose something here. What are we going to do to the rate in this area? Mm -hmm. Bottom line, the system is broken, and they need to fix it. How do they fix it? I'm not any better qualified than anybody else to say how to fix it. They were thinking about a moratorium on the entire county of Nassau for next year, possibly, where nobody was allowed to file tax grievances. Everything would stay status quo. The problem is is that you can't move through the county that quickly because there's, there's 450,000 homes and probably 100 to 125,000 commercial parcels that have to be properly Reassessed. However, my suggestion, and I don't know whose ears this will fall on, is if they took individual towns in Nassau County, the town of Oyster Bay, and they put a moratorium on them this year and said, you guys can't grieve your taxes, and they sent the team of assessors in there, and they reassessed that town this year and put a moratorium on them. That they could feasibly do. And then next year they went to the town of Hempstead, and a year right. after that they go to the five towns area, and a year mm-hmm. after that they come into the individual villages, and so on yeah, and so on and so on. Right? Until you get all of the towns done, and then collectively everything is properly reassessed. Now the, the attorneys obviously are going to have a field day with this because you can't stop due process. However, if there's a vote, and there should be a vote, and the vote should, you know, you have to think of both sides of the fence. If you're sitting out of the assessment review process for one year, and it's only your town so that the job can properly be done, why not allow it to happen? What What is one year going to make in the lifespan of a homeowner that averages twelve to $15,000 in the county of Nassau to redo and fix and reassess the system one town at a time. That's my. That's the way that I would approach the solution. Some people say yay to that. Other people say nay. I don't know where. I don't know where, why, when, how, or what is the proper fix. But something along those lines has to be reviewed in order to put that in place to fix the system as we currently know it. My well, house, I, I could almost, I could almost see a fight ensuing um, about which <laughs> town is going to be chosen first. You put that moratorium on, right? Well, you know, there's there's the good side of the street and there's the bad side of the street on on in every town, and you know this is this is the same point in case with that. Whereas, 
you know, who gets to go first and why, or who wants to go first, and let the public vote on it. You know, if someone, I'm paying, personally, I started with my taxes on my house at over $13,000, and after grieving my taxes properly and having appraisals done and everything else, I've managed to get my house down below $6,000. My neighbors across the street are over 17000 but they're public sector workers, and because they have union jobs within the municipalities, they don't want to lock the boat, and they're not going to grieve their taxes. That's also part of the problem. I didn't know about yeah, that. I, 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 you know, it's just fascinating, um, and I think that you not only you're describing the um, the new law, but then giving actual uh, suggestions for fixing the problem, which it makes you know that's um, a good plan. You know, a plan. First of all, it sounds like a good plan, but it is a plan. And because when you talk about the school districts have, you know, being the ones responsible to be paying back these monies, you're right, a half a million dollars on a small school district, that affects everybody's taxes. I mean, there's got to be people right down. Well, let, let me go. Let me. I'm going to take this a little bit further since, you know, the conversation is interesting at this point. There's a lawsuit that's going on in Nassau County right now where is the residential assessment ratio tax rate is 0.25, okay? So based on the value of your house as it is today, um, if you divide it by 0.0025, you come up with what your county tax is, okay? And as a hearing officer, that's what we based our decisions on. However, some of the larger law firms, while I was a hearing officer, came in and they challenged the rate and they brought it in front of the Supreme Court that what they wanted to do, because the value had decreased, is they wanted to change the rate from 0.25 to 0.232. And a directive came down from um, the upper echelon within the Supreme Court of Nassau County that, as hearing officers, we actually had the authorization to change the rate if we so felt um, that these attorneys were presenting the rate change properly. I'm sitting here, I'm not an attorney, okay, but I've got enough legal um, education to know that if I'm the guy that throws the monkey wrench into the system and if I change for one, I have to be able to change for all. And now what you have are two different rates that are being used in the county. One is .25 and the other is .232. When you change the rate to .232, that's an 8% difference on a taxable value of your house and it's an 8% reduction in which your county and school taxes are going to be straight across the board. I don't know which hearing officer, you know, was the first to do this or why they did it, but it shouldn't have been done and it shouldn't have been left to the lower echelon as administrative judges, a.k.a. hearing officers on tax cases on the residential side to even screw the system up further, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, now you have two different tax rates in the county that are being used. And the problem is, is that, you know, as a general homeowner that goes about your business on a daily basis, A, this is something that really doesn't concern you. B, it's hidden in your mortgage. And C, you know, you challenge it, but when you lose your challenge, you're like, all right, well, we tried and it's, you know, it's the firm's fault that they weren't able to get me a reduction. 
That's not true at all. If the firm had done the work in, in the format that the county wanted it done, if, you, if they were able to prove value before they even took your case, they would have done the work and, and you would be getting a reduction. But if they can't prove the value, they probably wouldn't have taken your case because there's a lot of firms out there that just take cases to put them through a window. Um, you know, and they'll sit there and they'll try and negotiate everything out because 450,000 homes on the residential side in Nassau, 420 some odd thousand in Suffolk, you throw enough paper through the window and based on nickels and dimes, these firms are making millions. And it, there has to be a burden of proof supplied, and the rate needs to be equal for everybody. And at this point, Nassau County has shot itself in the foot by allowing a hearing officer to be able to change that rate from 0.25 to 0.232, in my opinion. Okay, you can't give somebody an 8% difference. How do you think that that actually got passed origi- you know, originally? Well, I, I know for a fact that the uh, the tax firms, um, the larger tax firms, created a class action suit on behalf of the uh, homeowners of Nassau County, and they submitted it to the Supreme Court. However, the judge that heard the case wasn't willing to render a decision and was sitting on the fence, and the directive came back down to the hearing officers. I haven't passed the bar exam. And I'm not a federal judge. I'm not, I'm not a Supreme Court judge. I'm an administrative judge and a hearing officer who has qualifications that are based on value, not ratio, okay? Mm-hmm. Ratio is, is for an assessor within the municipality to decide. Value right. is for me to decide and compare an apple versus an apple that are similar and find out where the difference in the two numbers are. Or if somebody is bringing an apple and an orange to the table, say, nah, the apple is the apple and the orange is the orange, and the difference between the two is X. I don't have any reason or any right, in my opinion, to play with a residential assessment ratio and give an 8% discount and change the system for some, but not all. And that's a really big problem. That was that, hasn't was even that started. a political move? You think that was uh, politically based? I don't know. I, I don't know, and I can't say. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't know. I know in my mind that I went through a forty-five minute argument with one of the law firms one morning, and I said, "Counselor, I said I am not qualified to change the rate for the county, and I don't care what information you bring in front of me. I'm not changing the rate." And after forty-five minutes, counsel got frustrated with me and said, "I have better things to do with my time," and got up and stormed out of my courtroom. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, the day didn't go very well for him. But <laughs> 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 well, you know I, that's I the way the cookie crumbles. You know, nobody ever yeah. said that. In general, you know, taxes, taxes in Nassau, Long Island, um, it's it's it is a big, major problem. Um, it, it, you know, and and anybody should uh, probably. We'll talk with uh, Mark over here and uh, see what he could possibly do for you. Um, Let me ask you guys a question. If I'm uh, a business owner and I see a building, uh, a space that I would possibly want to locate my business, okay, should you just – and so if I went to you, Diane, and said, gee, this is great, but, you know, there's $125,000 a year in taxes, so yes. would it be that 
then it should be the current land, uh, land uh, you know, the current property owner. Should they talk to Mark? Should you look at it? Because there might be this possibility of a reduction, which would mean uh, that maybe I, that property We do this on a daily basis. Be- Diane does this with me all the time, and I do it with Diane. This, this, is a, this is a vicious circle that we live in every single day. We find tenants like you that are willing to purchase or lease property on a consistent basis, and when they find out what the taxes are, they try to figure out whether or not the, the property is under a sociality proceeding or not as of now. And if not, if they're purchasing the property and they're purchasing the property for less than what the assessed value is, which is very hard to do in this market because the county has lowered the value so far that it's really, really hard to do, that you know you can bring a proceeding based on what you're purchasing at. But if the county has you valued at, let's say, 700000 and your taxes are $85,000, and, you know, the sale price of the property is $750,000, you are not going to have a case. You just, bought the, you just bought the property for $50,000 more than what the county had you assessed at. And which also leads to another subject, that if you buy a property, whether it's improved or unimproved, that is over the assessment value, and let's just say the taxes on that piece are $75,000, and and you buy the property for 25% up and above what Nassau County has it assessed at, your chances are very, very, very good that your, your taxes are going to be raised in accordance with your new purchase price because you have already set what you're, you're you're already telling Nassau County what the value is. Right. You have already told them that the value is now higher than what you that what you're telling them. So now they're going to adjust your taxes higher in accordance with your new value, which has been proven because you've closed. Right. Which brings us back to corporate America and those prime corners, and that they don't care what they pay in taxes. And if you had located one, two, three storefronts down from that corporate tenant that's overpaying so grossly that they don't care and they'll continue to pay that tax bill, the county's under no, you know, some, some of the language in the, uh, in the handbook for hearing offices is the assessor is under no obligation whatsoever to reduce your taxes under any circumstance, period. <laughs> so based on that, regardless of what your burden of proof is, if the county doesn't have it to give back or if the county can't adjust everybody else and give you some kind of relief, they don't have to. Mm-hmm. That almost leaves me speechless. You know? <laughs> I'm just telling you. Because I can like show you where it's written. Here. I, it's... The, the assessor is under no obligation whatsoever for any reason to give the petitioner any relief under any condition if he so feels just. Period. Hmm. Which means you have to Uh, really push your case. Your burden of proof has to be actual. You have to be able, you, you better have appraisers that are honest, are able to, to understand what the market value is, and they better be able to formulate from the income approach and the market value approach 
that the property is roughly within 10 to 15% between those two appraisal values when it goes into the county in order to get the relief that you seek. Otherwise, the assessor is going to say, doesn't meet our criteria, sorry, you're gone. Mm-hmm. And now you've wasted 150 days, probably expended five or $6,000 for appraisals and legal fees and time and everything else. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into these cases. So someone's not going to bring a case on this level to get that kind of relief unless there's an absolute knockdown, drag out, I'm going to win case. Trust me on this. All the game playing mm-hmm. is over. And that's why Mangano wrote this law and said, look, if you feel that you that you have, you know, justified relief coming to you, prove it. I'm the only firm that took that risk. And on both of the cases that I brought, we were able to to successfully get the clients the relief that they sought, and they're very happy. In order to find those two clients, I probably had to go through 60 others that were declined. Mm-hmm. So, you mm-hmm. know, just, just food you know, for thought. You know what I'd like, uh, what I'd like to do is, um, I think this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, I'd like you, um, once we're done, I'd like to put together some, uh, some kind of reference, or do you have something about this that you've written or blogged about? You know, to give a let someone know, or you, the two of you say that you you know you discuss this with people. So a little reference, and then we can have another conversation on it because I think it's what I did you know, for you, Mildred. Was I sent you a copy of the local law to your email? So oh, if you wanted to post it okay. on your website so that you know your listeners could could read it over, and it makes really good bathroom reading. No offense, but it's only six pages long, and it, it's not difficult reading. It's not laid out in legal format to the point that the average businessman or or layman can't understand it. Those people that are being charged heavy on taxes, it's six pages of very easygoing reading. I forwarded that to you. I also forwarded you a couple letter of references that I had from uh, some professional organizations that I was able to get some grievances on. And if you Mm -hmm. need my bio and corporate information, I also forwarded that to you as well. Right. What I'll do is... uh got a Facebook page for Blog Talk Radio, and then um, so I can put the links up there because then we put it on, Diane, we can put it on your Facebook uh, page, and I've got several other reference pages as well. And then what I'd like to do is follow, I'd like to read some of this myself and then follow up, and then maybe we can, because uh, right now you, it, it almost seems that there is a large franchise you you don't have a chance because so I, I don't quite see how that works. So that maybe could be something, especially after I give it a look, we can get some questions from people and questions that people are asking you that you can then answer. So um oh, I, I, and I might first suggest anybody who's looking for a particular property or has a particular property that they that they have in mind for this. A, contact a very good commercial broker first, such as myself, unless you have somebody else in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and second, we'll, uh, I, as you know, I work with Mark, and we'll be able to put this together. But you need a, you need a good commercial broker first to evaluate if the property is, is, is the best suited for you. Then we could take it to yeah. the next level, if, and then we could then we could work from you know from on 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 the tax portion of it. Mhm. Yeah, this 
I, I think this is great. So I want to thank you both, and we'll uh, on the Blog Talk Radio Facebook page. I'll have both links to your pages and websites and contact information. And what I'd like to do is in in a couple of weeks do a follow up conversation on that. If that's uh, you know we'll work out a date two or three. I know it's summer. Maybe you're going away or something. So you know sure. do a follow up on this in a couple of weeks. And um, just been fascinating. Um, I thank you so much, Mark and Diane. It's just uh, a very and if very anybody if anybody contacts us through Facebook or LinkedIn. Um, and would like to um, have some very pointed questions that when we do this again uh, on our next rerun, uh, we'd be mm-hmm. able to bring out some of those questions from um, from some of the uh, viewers uh, that that we might be able to uh, you know answer for you on on air. Yeah, no, this is great. This is fabulous. Well, thank you both so much. And um, we will uh, follow up, and I'll be posting everything, and we'll look, we look forward to your next uh, call. Have a great day, everyone. You okay. Too. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Sure, bye. Bye. Um, okay. What we're going to do now is I thought that was just very interesting. I have two recorded segments. The first one will be with Michelle Koch and it's uh, staging. Um, Then after that, we'll have a conversation with Jason Marcus uh, on mortgages and, uh, you know, how you can plan, whether it's for commercial or uh, residential. But I'm going to start playing Michelle's uh, conversation. Here we go. Okay, you there? Hi. Hi, this is Mildred Chisoni, and we have Michelle Cox on here. How are you? I'm good, Mildred. How are you? Good, good. Um, well, today you're going to talk about um, uh, a job that you just finished where you uh, combined old and new um, uh, to help sell this house. So maybe you could give us an overview of the pieces, the house, and what you did. Yeah, um, this is about a 3,000-square-foot home, and um, it's out in Franklin, which is a very beautiful, um, very nice uh, part of Nashville. And the home is very traditional. It's on about six acres of land. There's a pool. Um, so the home itself is very traditional, and all the furnishings were very traditional, and all the accessories, beautiful, beautiful, exquisite pieces but a very specific style throughout the entire home, with the exception of some country as well. And so I, the goal um, for me as a stager was to use the traditional pieces um, that I felt would work in my design plan, but add a contemporary layout um, to the furniture and the accessories and also add some more contemporary um, furnishings as well because I wanted to appeal to the broadest range of potential buyers. So if I kept everything traditional, I'd only be appealing to those buyers who like traditional furnishings. So I mixed it up and um, brought in uh, you know, some new color arrangements and took out all the blue and white that 
screamed country, <laughs> mm. but used some of the beautiful wood furniture and um, just created a, a broader um, spectrum of um, furniture layout and colors so that a young, it was a perfect, it's a perfect home for a family. So a young family with contemporary taste could go in and see the traditional furnishings and also see that um, their style of furniture and their lifestyle could also fit in a very traditional home. Um, and likewise, someone with traditional taste could see the traditional pieces used and um, in a, a new layout. So it worked out really well, and the homeowner was happy. And and, I, and I really so did you, go, did you go through each room um, or did you stage, you know, some of the rooms with the mixture? Or um, I, I know went you every room. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I, I know you mentioned in another conversation that we've had that um, you kind of shop through the house and how you do that. Right. Maybe you could tell us. Yeah, I went. I go through every room. If it's an occupied home, I go through every room. And I look at every accessory, every wall hanging, every piece of art, and really evaluate it and make sure that it fits in my design plan. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of times what I do, and I did this with this home especially, uh, as soon as I walk in the room, I take all the art down because I want a, a clean slate. And I put all the, um, everything I take down or move, out of the room, I've put in a central location. So in this house, it was the kitchen. Um, and the pieces that I was particularly drawn to, um, I let the homeowners know I'm gonna I'm gonna use those. I don't know where or how, but I am gonna use those and um, let them know they could they could put the other stuff in storage if they wanted. But yeah, then I could um, shop from that area and as I'm rearranging things. You know, I have everything in one place. And sometimes I end up putting, um, <clears throat> you know, a picture back where it was originally. But most of the time, I'm going to use it someplace else. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Their kitchen, their kitchen was all blue and white, which just screamed country. But it's a, it was a beautiful kitchen. I mean, um, well, the Eden kitchen part um, was very country, but the other part of the kitchen had granite countertops and the beautiful cabinetry and nickel hardware. It was very contemporary. Mm -hmm. and they had, But their furniture in the Eden kitchen was, uh, you know, light pine and white, which is very country. So I saw a dark wood table down in their basement, and I asked them if they would mind switching out the tables and taking out the white and pine table and bringing up this dark wood table. And they, and they were so agreeable and so gracious and we hauled out all the white and pine uh, furniture and put the table in, and um, I just kept adding more and more dark wood furniture and dark furnishings to go with the cabinetry, and it just transformed the whole space. It, 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 by the time I was finished, there was nothing country about it. It was very contemporary, but they didn't have to change their paint colors. They didn't have to change their curtains. So Oh, good, yeah. So. And it sounds like they were very agreeable, and we have also spoken at other times about residential real estate being so emotional, the mm -hmm. emotional component to yeah. it, which 
which makes it a little different than, um, uh, like you were talking about, an empty house. Right. What's, what's your different approach between an empty house as opposed to a lived-in house? Um, yeah. mm-hmm. an, a vacant home is sta- a standard format that I use. Um, I stage the living room, dining room, kitchen, master bedroom, all the bathrooms, all the entryways, including you know the outside the doorway. And I use the same style furnishings in every home, and um, they they work in any style home. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's pretty straightforward. It's, it's very um, enjoyable, but it's it's pretty straightforward. But with an occupied home, there's a lot of emotional um, processing that's going on for the homeowner. I mean, they're allowing me into their home. They've just met me, you know. Right, <laughs> and I'm going right. in and I'm taking their their um, artwork off the walls, you know, artwork they might have been looking at for 20 years and mm-hmm. I'm putting it someplace else and I'm, you know, or just rearranging things or maybe not even using it. And so they have to be very trusting with me and I have to be very respectful of them. And um, oftentimes I just stop what I'm doing because and listen because something about either the furniture or the artwork that I'm touching you know, brings a story out in them, mm-hmm. and they want to share with me where that came from and why it's significant to them. And so I'll stop and I'll listen. And sometimes they'll say to me that, that there are certain pieces that are really important to them, and they don't want to live in the home without them. You know, mm-hmm. and so I I tell them I, I understand, and I'm going to do my best to try to use those pieces and make them work in my design plan because. For one, I want to be respectful, and for two, I want the homeowner to be comfortable while they're living in their home. I want them to feel at ease in a, in their staged home, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, it, it seems to work out today with this job. You know, they had some real special pieces, and I put them all in one area, and I was able to incorporate all of them in my design plan. Mm-hmm. I know happy. you... Yeah, I know you've mentioned, oh, I lost my train of thought. I was trying not to step on what you said, and I lost my train of thought. Um, uh, Okay, so uh, it'll come back. I know I'll think of it again. For homeowners moving and like that kind of emotional part for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, Why don't you talk about uh, you've got a a job that you're uh, starting on um, tomorrow, that you're just ha- you're meeting the realtor there and you yeah. uh, um you're for Keller Williams right and which office um, the Green Hills office and mm-hmm. um it's an occupied home and I spoke with the realtor today and my understanding is that the homeowners have done a lot of great upgrades they've put granite countertops in and really did a lot of work on the home but they've They've just reached a roadblock, and um, and they and they're very motivated to have a professional come in and help them decide which furniture now to to use in their newly renovated home and make sure that it's staged properly. And it sounds like they have a lot of um, furnishings, and they're not sure what to keep and what not to keep. So mm-hmm. I'm going to help them out with that. Mhm. And and you also helped a realtor too, like uh so that you 
can start boxing up and getting people, getting their move, things that they're going right. to take. So it's help, it helps in the whole process of them moving. Absolutely. It's not um, because this way they can decide what's really important and what's not as important and um, right. what really has the emotional uh, attachment um, to it. Uh, do you usually, I, I would imagine you would discuss the flow of how the realtor might want to show the house um, as well, especially if you get a house that's been added on to, so there might be doors where there really didn't start out being doors. I mean, some houses don't make sense, so I would think you would help it make sense. Um, yeah, that's a huge part of my job. <laughs> yeah, is to make it all make sense. And sometimes it takes just for me to just sit in the room for a while and just sit quietly on the floor and just be in space and just see how would I use that space. And sometimes I just wait for the idea to come to me. But um, it's it is so crucial as a stager to. Um, decide how the space makes sense and then use the furniture and the accessories that create, um, that designate that space for that purpose and then mm -hmm. communicate that um, through your layout and your design plan to the potential buyers. So I, one of the rooms I staged today uh, was empty. They weren't really using it for anything except some storage and I set it up as a library and, um, and th that's what we called it for the rest of the day. <laughs> that's the library. So everything mm -hmm. that's been in the room from that point forward had to fit into the design plan, um, what, you know, that designates that room as a library. So that's that's a and made it make sense. It, it's so interesting that you say that you sit there and let the room. I've done open houses, and um, I I actually do the same kind of thing where I'll sit there. And, I mean, of course, you'd rather have more people at an open house, but sometimes you don't, you know, and yeah. and get a sense of, I just sit there and feel the room and, and gee, um, uh, how, how the flow, because I think the flow of showing a house, um, especially ones that aren't just so clear cut as far as how to show it, um, to get a sense of, of the house itself. So it's interesting oh, that you absolutely. do that as well, you know. Um, and it's so subtle. It really doesn't take much at all. I mean, like um, designating, there was a beautiful guest room in the room I staged today, but the colors lent, kind of lent itself to being um, a, a child's room or a baby mm -hmm. nursery. And all I did was change the artwork out and use some of the artwork they had that had some children in it or a silhouette of a woman and I put a little teddy bear on the dresser with a stack of kids books and that's really all it took it's such a subtle mm -hmm. switch of energy and transformation to create the to designate a space for what you want it to be you don't have to add a bunch of primary colors to say this is a children's room you know mm -hmm. yeah and and to make a major change right you know right um, I, try so. to, I try to save as much work on the homeowner as possible. So if they have a beautiful color scheme and uh, you know enough to uh, like in that for you know in that case to where I can just do a slight tweak 
to make it what I want it to be. I, I do as little as possible because I want it to be simple and I want it to be, you know, to make a statement, but I don't want homeowners dragging dressers up and down stairs if they don't right. want to. And I don't want to either. Yeah, you know, sometimes you have to. But uh, one right. thing I, I thought you spoke well about was um, how you help them. They'll be living in the space, but really a transition in their mind that they're moving in their right. staging their investment, yeah. right? How do you right. uh, you you well, you had better degree. phrasing on it, yeah? Right, I have a degree in psychology, and I feel like it really helps with those types of conversations because um, they're like you said, they're. It, it, moving is emotional for anybody, but especially someone who's been in their home for a long time and possibly raised their families there. And so um, a part of my job as a stager is to listen to, you know, where where they are in their life and in this process of moving and help them make the transition from seeing their home as their home, their family home, their memories, and begin to see it as their investment. This is their investment, and we are marketing their investment to the broadest range of potential buyers possible. We're going to make it look the very best we can make it look to the most people possible. So, you know, um, all the country has to come out, and all the neutral colors have to come in, and, you know, but help the homeowners see that um, we're in this together and um, that this part of the transition is really the best part because, you know, they've been working hard all their lives and um, put that, you know, have the equity in the home that is, um, you know, just my job to help them get the most out of it. Right, and and I think that's excellent, and I think once you help someone see that, um, it makes it easier, and and they'll get a better price. So, well, you're right. you're going to take some before and after pictures of the house that you're going to uh, work on, and then we can post some of those up on your um, yeah, some video if you get it, and um, and then we can uh, we'll see how it what some of the challenges were for this house, and uh, you know how you how you were able to solve them. So. That sounds um, great. Yeah, good. So we'll talk next time. Thanks so much. Thank okay. you for having me. Sure. Thank you. Talk okay. to you later. Right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. So thanks to Michelle. And now what we're going to do is uh, listen to the conversation that Jason and I had yesterday. And here we go with this. Hi, this is Mildred Tassoni and Jason Marcus. Hi, Jason. How are you? I'm well, Mildred. How are you? Good, good. Um, so what would you like to talk about today? Well, the first thing I'd like to speak about is uh, recently there was a, I believe it was in Sunday's paper, there was a Newsday article um, which basically kind of covered that the industry on the mortgage end is starting to lean towards 20% down, which naturally would make it very difficult for a lot of people to start buying properties. The article itself was a little bit uh, misleading just because it's not necessarily true, and I'll explain. One of the 
criteria that banks are starting to come across are requirements for reserves on any amount of money that gets lended out. Now, these are specific types of portfolio loans that are going to stay internal within the bank that would affect this. So let's say, for argument's sake, you borrow a million dollars. Five percent of that million dollars by the bank has to be put into a reserve liquid fund, which basically makes it that they can't use that money to lend out to others. Now, these aren't going to affect anything that's purchased, any mortgages that are purchased by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or part of FHA or the VA at this point in time. So 98% of mortgages that are getting done out there, this isn't going to have an effect on. Now, unfortunately, in the article, the information really wasn't um, specified correctly where people could understand that by reading it. It was more of uh, media feeding the fuel of the fire where it hit the panic button. FHA doesn't seem to be going anywhere, which is still at a 3.5% requirement down payment at the bare minimum. So these mortgages are going to continue to exist for the probably the distant future where people should be aware that it isn't going to be a requirement where you only can get a house if you put 20% down. So that's the first thing that I just kind of wanted to point out to people because I'm getting quite a bit of questions and actually fielded that exact question at a business meeting this morning. Mm-hmm. No, that's uh, that's good because you read something and on one hand you want to keep up with what's going on, but there's just so much that you, sometimes you don't know uh, what to believe, what to pay attention to, especially if you're thinking of buying or selling. Um, I know something else that we spoke about uh, was uh, last week I think you mentioned about uh, paying down debt and getting ready for, um, you know, buying and getting your paperwork in order. So um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no problem. One of the latest criteria that have been set forth um, has to do with exactly what you said, paying down debt to qualify, where banks at this point in time are saying, fine, you can pay off this debt, but you have to close the account. Now, if you have any idea on how credit winds up getting scored, a lot of the percentage of how your credit score is built is based on your high limit versus what your balances are. Those get put into ratios. For example, if you have a credit card with a $10,000 limit, you have a $5,000 balance, naturally that's 50%. The lower that percentage is, the better your credit score is because it shows that you have discipline to a degree. Now, the credit scoring system is all automated, so naturally you don't have a human being looking at this where it's you know, making logical decisions. It's all based on numbers and the facts, how many payments you've made, if you've made late payments, if you're current, what your balances are versus what your limits are. If you're put into a situation where you have this $5,000 balance on that $10,000 card, and you don't have a lot of different trade lines, so this is, you know, helping your overall ratio out, your debt ratio, if you will. Um, and you need to pay that off to qualify. Unfortunately, the banks at this point in time are making you close that account, which could have a very negative impact on your overall credit score because if you do pay that $5,000 off and you have to shut that line down, if you don't have other supporting cards which have available credit lines and limits, 
it could really change that ratio and affect you very negatively. So these are the little things that originators should be looking for and additional questions that should be asked when we're trying to figure out how to qualify people and how to do it in such a way where it's A, not going to affect their credit rating and inevitably lead them to getting a worse rate or obviously make it so that way they're not putting themselves in a detrimental position to not even be able to qualify. Now, as these new rules and rights continue to come out and we have to absorb it, it's been, it's, it's been a challenge because, unfortunately, the pendulum swung from one side completely to the other, where in, back several years ago, it was almost absurdly ridiculous how easy you can get a mortgage. They were taking mortgages with 100% financing, very low credit scores, and basically just handing loans out to people, where now even your A-plus borrowers, it's just almost unbelievable how scrutinized a lot of these, uh, these banks have become in just assessing whether or not a person can qualify, playing it a little bit too safe, and I look forward to the day where they finally just take the microscope off of uh, the mortgage industry as a whole, because I think it's kind of gotten a little bit um, detrimental to a degree, but you can completely understand with just the way that the um, foreclosure rates have been continuing to skyrocket, why they're scrutinizing as much as they are. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you recommend as, um, suppose uh, a couple's just getting married and they, what, you know, they think, oh, well, we'll just rent. Would you suggest a year is not even too soon to be having someone look, a responsible person, look at their numbers to kind of guide them, even if they're not thinking of, uh, you know, right now. They know they're going to rent even for a couple of years. Anyone doesn't have to be just getting married. But, um, you know, I mean, people, uh, time frame, uh, is two years even too soon to have somebody take a look just to, like, because the credit cards, who who would know that? Who would know, you know, don't pay this, you know, close this one, you know, which ones you pay, you know, off, which ones you might leave a balance on? What would you suggest? I am a firm believer of a couple different facts. One, it's never too soon to sit there and have this conversation. I had a conversation today, actually, with a homeowner who's possibly thinking about selling, wanting to buy something else, was asking me, um, you know, quite a, quite a number of different questions where it's like, why don't we just sit down, get all the papers necessary to break all this down, and figure out exactly where you are. It's a free consultation. Within a day or two, we're going to have every option for short-term versus long-term, and you dissect this stuff to the degree where I can set them in motion. The biggest trouble you have in our industry is people get that idea like, I want to buy a house and they try to make it happen within, you know, a couple of weeks, and then it's the mad scramble, and then it's, okay, we need to get our assets in order, we need to deal without debt, and everything becomes this unbelievable rush. I don't think it's ever too much time in between starting this process to the point where you're going to buy a house. If you think you're going to buy a house within the next two years, why 
why wouldn't you spend a couple hours at this point in time to just break all this down, to set yourself in motion, to come up with a plan, and to actually step-by-step methodically go through it so that way you lessen these headaches that could possibly arise based on these changes. There's no possible way the layman person is going to know that these changes are occurring, what banks are looking for, um, and be able to get all this stuff accomplished without educating themselves and having a professional look at it. So mm-hmm. I don't think if you're going to buy within the next two years, I don't ever think it's too soon to start this process and break it down because at the end result, like I said, I can set them up with a plan that we can short-term or long-term that can put them in a situation where they're not going to have to worry about these things. We'll be able to dissect it. And even with the fact that interest rates might change and go up, we can always take an approach where we know what this is all math. And it's, it's basically simple math. So we can sit there and figure out, okay, if the interest rate goes up a half, you're going to lose X amount in buying power. If your income increases by this, based on historically how your income has been going up, this is what you're looking at. This is how you should address the write-offs that you're writing off on your tax returns. This is how you should attempt to pay down the debt so that way inevitably you can qualify without having to worry about it. And when you pay off this debt, this will make it so that way if you pay it down to this level and be here when you're ready to buy, you're not going to be forced into a situation where you close these cards. And most of these consultations, like I said, it's a matter of just – If you're organized and you have these docs, and in this day and age with the computers especially, most of the docs that you would need being your last two years' tax returns, a month's worth of pay stubs, um, two months' worth of your um, assets banking-wise or retirement-wise, these aren't things that are all that complicated to get your hands on. Most people in this day and age have PDFs of all of these things where I'll request this and an hour later it's in front of me. Within a day I'm back in touch with these potential clients and I've already structured their plan and set them in motion. It's a simple process that if you're organized and you're intelligent, it's going to make your life so much easier when it actually comes down to buying and none of this stuff's going to be a shock, be it what the mortgage payment's going to wind up being, how you're going to budget yourself for that particular mortgage payment, how you're going to handle your other debt. All of these things can all be worked out so far ahead of time where you can prepare for it. Because the hardest thing is just trying to jump into it and then trying to deal with your budgets and figuring out how you're going to go about doing this. And it's overwhelming to people where if you actually have a game plan and a plan of attack, it makes it that much easier. Yeah, uh, great. Uh, you know, one thing that you said right as we were starting, um, people thinking about selling. Well, they should also, uh, even if they're, and honestly, I don't know, people sell their houses, they, they're they going to buy something, they have tons of money, they don't need to take a mortgage, but that's not necessarily the case, I would think. So if somebody's even been in their house a long time and maybe older, um, should they consider even looking, having someone look at their numbers? Whether Or, or do a lot of people that sell um, who have been in their homes a long time, do they take out mortgages? Or honestly, I don't know. I don't know what the numbers are. Do you? It depends. I mean, there's always the downgrade situation, but each person, it's naturally specific to them. Um, Most people these days don't have the luxury of being able to sell their house, 
not have a mortgage and then buy something all cash. And even if they do and they're in that position, it never hurts to have a, a, a – generally then you're going to probably want to sit with your accountant and discuss your options because that's equally as important, especially when you're talking about sustaining – you know, the comfortability of a lifestyle that you're used to moving mm-hmm. on and trying to figure out that the hardest thing in the world is, is trying to project how long you're going to live and how much money you're going to need to do so. So you yeah. always need to have that plan. But on the flip side, plenty of people have conversations with me about selling their house and even downgrading. And there, then there's multiple situations where you're going to want both your mortgage um, planner and your accountant, possibly and logically speaking to each other, where they come up with a joint plan together where it's like X amount of funds are going to be allocated towards the mortgage part. Um, they're going to be left with X amount of dollars on the mortgage itself, and you're going to take X amount of dollars to then invest in whatever you know the financial planner or an accountant mm-hmm. suggests to sit there and make sure that there's enough money down the road. And naturally, you also have the planning aspect of how to set up your title so that way your children aren't being put into a situation where the house is going into an estate. There's a lot of different ways where you're going to benefit your family members and yourself by planning and taking long-term and short-term situations and figuring out what the smartest play is going to wind up being. But mm-hmm. the worst piece, and I get this all the time, unfortunately, is the person who lists their house, is about to sell it, doesn't figure out what the end plan is on the house that they're going to buy, know they're going to need a mortgage on it, figure that their listing price is how much of the proceeds they're going to walk away with, and then the numbers don't wind up working. So when you're sitting there and you're in a situation where you need to sell your house, you always have to sit you should sit with somebody like myself where I can sit there and take a worst-case scenario, make sure that still works, give you your best-case scenario versus your worst-case scenario, so that way when you're sitting there figuring it out, this doesn't come to a complete shock or you're not in a position where this is going to be detrimental to you. Because plenty of times I've had houses listed, I don't know, $500,000 that sell for 420 and these guys are all figuring proceeds out with 480 and if you have $60,000 left, that might wind up changing your approach. It probably is going to change your plan, and you have to obviously absorb all this stuff. The sooner you can figure all, all that out, the easier it's going to be for that transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and when you said that, that's what I thought of. I think people, you know, from a buyer perspective, they um, get that. But selling, seller just thinks, oh, I want most money for my house you know it's not it's not as a natural focus and it's not as naturally integrated into the process they figure i just have to get it ready and it'll sell and um one thing at the uh, meeting we had this morning uh we were looking at or actually the class we did this afternoon um it there was one of the tabs on some of the information on your website that talked about incorporating improvements into the loan, or that might be something that I was looking at. I can't exactly remember. Are there a way if you want to put solar into, say, if you're buying a house and the mortgage 
I guess solar is a good example. Um, if you're thinking you might want to do solar, is that a good idea to put into a mortgage? or And is there a way to do that if you uh, think that's something you might want to do? There are several, both FHA and conventional, as uh, we've talked about before, have rehab loans to purchase a house, but while purchasing that house, also making improvements over a six-month period at the longest to those particular houses. Naturally, in this day and age, to become more energy efficient is always an intelligent plan of attack. And there's loans out there naturally that we can incorporate these um, additions to these houses and in include it into the house itself. So there are two different products be it on the, like I said, the FHA side, which is the 203K, and conventional also has a uh, different approach for that, but they're very similar particular um, programs. Generally, when you find the house that you'd like, if you want to do any type of improvement, not just sitting there and putting uh, solar power in or changing from gas to uh, oil or vice versa, um, if you want to walk in and you want to upgrade the kitchen and make it more yours, you want to upgrade the bathroom, you want to resheet rock, gets a little bit more complicated if you start changing the dimensions of the house, but even if you want to dormer it or um, make extensions, all of these things are possible, and you can create homes based on what you want utilizing these types of products. So it is a little bit more challenging and requires more patience on the part of the purchaser because, you know, you're adding quite a few steps in here. You're talking about getting in contractors, getting in plans, uh, picking out all these different materials. But the end result, more t most of the time, your house is going to wind up being valued more than it costs you to do those improvements. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's just something uh, um, I thought was interesting, especially with the heating and cooling costs uh, uh, that that might be something that people hadn't thought about. So, uh, okay, any other comments you want to make for this week? Or well, we covered um, quite a bit. We covered quite a bit. There's naturally a ton of stuff, but obviously based on time constraints, you know, there's never enough time. But um, obviously, you know, this is always great information. We'll continue to bring this to the public and just keep updating them on any changes. Um, as of August 2nd, um, as most people have probably heard in the news, the latest thing is the debt ceiling. So that's been a major concern, and obviously politics is, has a lot to do with what's going on right now where both sides of the aisle aren't really meeting, especially when we're talking about, you know, re-election versus trying to, you know, put somebody different in the House. And that debt ceiling, it, it, it's... To understand it, if the debt ceiling doesn't get raised, then for the first time ever, the United States winds up losing their credit rating and it, it gets downgraded. Now, this is going to have a major negative effect on one of the last things that have been actually positive in the economy, which is interest rates. So at this point in time, I believe in my heart of hearts that they're going to once again raise the debt ceiling so that way we're not in a position where the United States is defaulting. Um, if it does wind up happening where they can't reach an agreement and by August 2nd the debt ceiling isn't raised and we wind up defaulting, 
it could have a major negative impact on the financial system. So over the course of the next week and a half, two weeks, we'll keep an eye on that. But don't be surprised in our next conversation when we're talking about the fact that the United States stepped up and Congress raised the debt ceiling and interest rates remain low. The problem is, is if they if this all does wind up coming to fruition and they don't raise it and what I the worst case scenario happens, you're gonna see an escalation in interest rates that affect your credit cards, your um, car loans, your home equity loans, and inevitably mortgage interest rates will go up. Can't imagine that that's going to help anybody's cause. So uh, I would imagine that the government's going to step up and do what needs to be done. One would think, one would think. But uh, anyway, okay, well, thank you so much. And um, we're um, both on Facebook. And uh, we'll, I, I'm put, I'll put the links on our Blog Talk Radio Facebook page. You've got Jay, Facebook, Jason Marcus, Mortgage Planner. I have Mildred Tassoni at Keller Williams um, Real Estate. Um, but I'll have all the links up there on our Blog Talk Radio show page. So thanks a lot. Always a pleasure, Mildred. Okay. Bye. Okay, so this is Mildred Tassoni, and I'm going to wrap up with just a couple of comments. One thing that has been accomplished this week is in New Hyde Park, we are establishing a New Hyde Park museum. Uh, Don Barbieri is the project chairperson. Uh, I'm the communications chairperson. Uh, we'll announce all the rest of the, you know, the plan. We're on Facebook at New Hyde Park Museum, so you can join us there. Uh, another major thing is uh, I've been working with Google Plus, well, major for me, and one of the features that I think is just uh, fabulous is the Hangout feature, where you can have up to eight people on a video conference. Uh, you don't have to have a video camera. You can just uh, have a microphone. But it, it doesn't hurt to have. And, for example, we're going to use it for a training follow-up session next week. We did a training session at Keller Williams yesterday. And so we're going to follow up next week. People are going to use it, then they're going to have questions. You can also have a YouTube video that uh, you can only have 10 people, but you can have people look at the YouTube, pause it, make comments over it. So I see this as a great advantage for meetings, uh, for example, for the New Hyde Park Museum uh, project for a an owner's meeting. It once it's once we get in the winter it's icy. You have people that are out of state, uh, on vacation, can't make it. You could all dial in or even just have one one camera, one dial in and uh use it so they could be right there with the meeting. I think it's really gonna bring the meeting capabilities into a, a good, easy, usable focus. So that's that's what I'm working on and also focusing on how to make it easier for people who might be have challenges for dexterity or hearing or seeing things clearly, computer screens, uh, 
uh, make it easy. Uh, voice activation, I think, would be a big help. So that, those are two of the things that uh, I'm going to be focusing on. And so I'm on Google+. Plus. Um, my Google Plus URL is gplus.to forward slash Mildred Tassoni. And, of course, we'll have that on our blog talk radio uh, Welcome to the Neighborhood Facebook page. So it's been a great show. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.